Would you please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Well, let's start in verse 17 of chapter 3 so we can get the context flowing here. Chapter 3, verse 17. Would you stand if you can? Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I often told you, and now I tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their goal, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, and from there we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Sintihe to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Seated. Oh God, you are over all things. You have established this world through the power of your word, and you uphold all things through the power of your word. Help me to be faithful to your word. And help the congregation to be faithful as they are listening. We need your help, Lord. May your Holy Spirit be within us, enabling us, so that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts may be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God and our Redeemer. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. The Washington, the Washington Post published a, uh, an article last month. And the title of the article was, Church membership in the U.S. has fallen below the majority for the first time in nearly a century. And the whole point of the article is to show how there has been a drastic decline in the U.S. in relation to all sorts of religions, and for us in particular, Christianity. And the article from the Washington Post, they quote uh, a man named Ryan Berg, or Berg, and he's a professor of political science at Eastern Illinois University. And he says, for some, for some Americans, religious membership is now seen as a relic of an older generation. Many Christians still attend church, but they do not consider membership to be important, especially those who attend non-denominational churches. So what we see is in our country is that, that there is a great majority of people that still profess affiliation. They profess affiliation to Christianity somehow. There is the profession of affiliation, but there is no demonstration of affection. There is a major difference between affiliation and affection. So the majority of the people in the U.S., they still profess to be affiliated somehow to Christianity. But we don't see any affection for what 
It is in the heart of the Christian faith that is Christ Jesus, the Gospel. A great number of professing Christians gladly and conveniently decided that streaming the service online is a much better option. So, I was reading an article from, uh, here's his name, Michael Lawrence. He's a pastor in, in Portland. Henson Baptist Church, some of us have been there before. And he talks about, he says, in this article, he says, People have said to us, he's referring to the leadership of the church, People have said to us, and here's what people have been saying to them, I got used to being able to stay in my pajamas and roll out of bed 15 minutes before service starts with my cup of coffee. It's fascinating because I was talking to another guy, at the gym, and we were talking, he's, he said he was part of a big church here in Salem, and, and it was a good opportunity to talk about the church. And I asked him what he thought about the online services. And he loved it. He loved it. He said, that I will continue just with the online. Exactly like that. I can just come with my cup of coffee. I don't need to get dressed. You come to church. And he starts seeing how how people see Christianity. As if it's a bothersome to get up early, to get dressed, to come to be with the people of God. And you see how perverted is the idea of worship, that they think that by having a cup of coffee and watching something on the screen, it's church and it's worship. Christianity has become for many a private and personal affiliation detached from any affection involvement with the church. And that's not biblical. That's not biblical at all. The mark of authentic Christianity, the mark of authentic Christianity is love for what Christ loves. And what does Christ love? His bride, His people. Look, read the text, and I want to read again. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul calls us to imitate the deep, affectionate love of God. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. A fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And then he expands how Christ loves His church in relation to husbands and wives. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Here's the love of Christ, the object of Christ's love. And we are to imitate, we are to walk in love by loving the church, Christ's people. See, the contrast with what's going on around us. I don't need to be in church. Hey, just staying at home and watching someone speaking and people singing. That's church. Look how John says. For this is the message, 1 John chapter 3. For this is the message. What message? The gospel message. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning. That we should love one another. He's talking to a church, local churches in Asia Minor. We know that we have passed from out of death into life because we love the brothers. We know that you are saved. That you have received new life. That you passed from spiritual death into a spiritual life because of your love towards whom? Yourself? The brothers. Who are the brothers? Brothers and sisters in the church. The mark of salvation. John is telling us, the mark of salvation is a love for the brothers and sisters in Christ. Whoever does not love, love what? The brothers and sisters. Abides in death. You're a spiritual dead. By this we know, love, that He, Jesus, laid down His life for us and we must lay down our lives for whom? 
for the brothers. Who are the brothers? He's speaking in the context of a local church. Of course, that would involve all our brothers and sisters in Christ, but primarily, because if you cannot love your brothers and sisters in a local church, you cannot love your brothers and sisters somewhere else. Amen? That's what we tell our kids. If you cannot love your siblings at home, you cannot love your friends outside the home. We start right here. So the most glorious display of affection and love, if somebody could ask you, what is the most glorious display of affection and love? What would you say? Oh, there are many. Throughout history, there are many examples of display of love and affection for another person. But nothing compares to the cross, where Christ displays His love for His people by hanging naked upon a Roman cross. And you see that this affection for the people of God is in the Trinity. The Son loves the church. The Father so loved the church, the church abroad, the world, Gentiles and Jews, that He gave His only Son. And the Spirit loves so much that He's indwelling His people right now. So, let me ask you, do you have this deep affection for the people of God? If we could, if we could see your heart would we see a peculiar affection for that which Christ loves, the church? If we could look at your social media, your posts, can we see there a peculiar and unique affection for the church of Christ? So my prayer is as we walk through Philippians chapter 4, and I want to just go through verse 1. My prayer is as we walk through verse 1, that Paul's affection, Paul's love for the church would impact us, would set us on fire inside our bones to love what Christ loves, and that's His people. So let's go to Philippians chapter 4. And you see in verse 1, that starts with, Therefore, and now we are coming to a transition in the letter to the Philippians. That's very important. We are coming towards the end of the letter. And right here, there is a shift. There is a transition. And we come to the last part of the letter. And Paul, beautifully and skillfully, he woves together themes from the preceding chapters into this final chapter, putting the whole letter, binding this whole letter together. So, repetition of many words that were used earlier, now Paul used once again as to bring to conclusion what he has been saying. And, and it's very, very personal. As you, as you read these next verses, you see how personal it is, the relationship between Paul and the Philippians. We see here words of affection that we don't find anywhere else in the New Testament. How Paul expressed himself to the church in Philippi We don't see anywhere else. And it's so intimate. It's so loving. It's so different from what we expect that it can be shocking. As we're going to see next Lord's Day, they have such a deep and intimate relationship that Paul can say from the public, I beseech Yodia and I beseech Suntuhe. To agree in the Lord, my dear sisters. That's how much He loves and how open their relationship is. So, the outline is very simple and I hope you can see in your own Bibles. First, Paul commands, and the commands here is an E. He commands the church. And then he commands the church with an A. There's the exhortation. And then he moves once again to commending the church, extolling, praising the church. And then, if you keep following, he moves to the exhortation. I beseech you, So that's what Paul is doing here. So let's go to verse 1. Verse 1. 
Therefore, you see there, therefore. And for those of you who study the letters of Paul, you know that throughout Paul's letters, he has a body of doctrine, and then he moves to therefore where the church must apply those doctrines. And that's exactly what he's doing here. So, for example, Romans chapter 12. Therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy. And he's the therefore is bringing back all the doctrines that Paul was teaching earlier. Therefore, in view of God's mercies. What mercies? You've got to go to the preceding chapters. Present your bodies as a living. And many of his epistles, you have this therefore, and then moves to the exhortation. But before Paul moves to the exhortation, you see, therefore, it just doesn't say, stand firm in the Lord. He just piles up words of affection towards the church in Philippi. It says if, read the context here. He's talking about heaven. For our citizenship is in heaven. From there we are waiting our Savior. And it is as if Paul is just overflowing with the thought that him and the Philippians will always stand together worshiping Christ. And that just bursts into words of affection. How, how, how much he longs, how much he loves them, and how much he wants all of them to be together when Christ comes back. So he says, Therefore, my brothers, my brothers. And it's as if Paul is stretching his arms wide open and embracing the whole congregation. My brothers. And we know that there were sisters in the church that were arguing with each other. And it's his way of just embracing them and making those who are having some sort of conflict look at each other's face and be reminded that they are sisters and they are brothers in Christ. You know, Paul used this, I think it's Paul's favorite term for the Christians here in the letter to the Philippians. And you can see, look in chapter 1. Verse 12. I want you to know what? Brothers. Look at chapter 3. Verse 1. Finally, my brothers. Verse 13. Brothers. Verse 17. Brothers. Chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers. Verse 8, finally, brothers. And it's not like Paul is just using a filler here. You know a filler? Um, or, uh, yeah, do you know? Right? Right? You know? No, that's not what Paul is doing. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit. God is purposefully repeating these words. And we must be attentive because the Lord in His wisdom is reminding all of us, not just the Philippians, but all of us about our identity. We are His children. We belong to His family now. You think about Paul. This man hated. He hated with all his guts. Gentiles. He'd look at Gentiles and he'd look to the scavengers those nasty dogs wandering through all the streets of Rome, and he would just put the two together. They're nasty. And now, this man says, You are my brothers. There was one thing that Paul hated more than Gentiles. Do you know what it was? Gentile Christians. Double blasphemy. And now, this man, he's saying, you are closer to me than my natural family. Dennis Johnson, he writes, From what we know of the ethnic composition of the city of Philippi, and what the book of Acts tells us about the first converts who became the core of this church, 
it's unlikely that many of those members in Philippi were Paul's Israelite kinfolk. But Jesus' blood shed for us on the cross binds believers together more tightly than DNA could ever do. Is it true? Do you believe that? Do you live that? Is that true in your heart? But Jesus' blood shed for us on the cross binds believers together more tightly than DNA could ever do. We are now brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul rejoices in that bond, reinforcing it as he prepares to speak correction into the lives of two treasured sisters. My brothers. The language of adoption, the language of being birthed into the kingdom of God, how precious it is. And sometimes you read brothers in the Bible and we just skip. But let me tell you, throughout most of the world, people, once they become Christians, they come to church with a suitcase. They come to church with a suitcase because they have no longer earthly family. And they come to church knowing that now they have a new family. That's in most of the world. Therefore, my brothers, and now he expands that, whom I love, my beloved brothers, agapetoi, my beloved. And Paul is saying that they are the object of his love. You are my beloved, whom I love. Think about that. And Paul is not using the superficial terminology of love that we hear so often throughout our society. Paul is the first one to define us what love is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He knows very well what love is. And he's saying, you are the object of my love. All my sacrifice, all my life is in your behalf. And because... He loves them so much, He has that bridge and that relationship to speak things that could be scandalous in the ears of so many, as He's about to say in the next verse. The man who once hated the church now sees the church as the main object of His love and affection. But they're not only the loved ones. Look at that. They're the longed ones. The ones who I long for. It's a powerful word. Earnestly desire. Paul used this word, and you can see in chapter 1. Turn with me to chapter 1. Look at verse 8. And you see the first time that Paul uses this word here. He says, For God is my witness, how I what? Yearn how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. The same word was used in chapter 2, and you can see in verse 26, as Paul is talking about Epaphroditus, for he has been longing for you all. And now Paul talks about himself once again. You are the object of my longing. And let me tell you, those whom you love, you long to be with. Amen? That's just ridiculous to say that you love someone, but you cannot stand being around that person. Those whom you love, you long to be with. You want to be with the ones that you love. And that's what we see right here. And Paul, this word, to long, is used in 1 Peter 2, chapter 2, verse 2. Peter says, like newborn infants, long for the spiritual milk. And he's referring to the Word of God. That by it you may grow up into salvation. And you see, we are to long, we are to earnestly desire the Word of God. And at the same time, we are to long and earnestly desire what? 
the people of God. I long for sermons. I long for preaching. But He has no love for the church, for the people of God. That's a worthless use of your time. So many people profess to be Christians, especially in the Reformed circle. They love the preaching. I long for the Word. But they have no life in community of the church. Serving, giving themselves up to build each other up. No, no, no. You can never separate the, the preaching from the local church. It's together. You must long for the Word because you must long to be transformed into the image of Christ. That's what the Word of God does in us. Grow us up into salvation. Grow us up into the likeness of Christ. And the more I look like Christ, the more what? I serve. I love what Christ loves. And that's the church. True love for Jesus leads to love towards His people. And true love is inseparable from, from longing to be with God's people. One scholar says, Christ's love for us ignites in us an affection for our brothers and sisters so intense that our absence from each other hurts. Our hearts ache for our reunion, as the old hymn rightly says. And then he quotes the hymn. And we, when we asunder apart, it gives us inward pain. But we shall still be joining heart and hope to meet again. So let me ask you, do you long, do you yearn to be with God's people? Do you long to be with your beloved brothers and sisters in Christ? And do you express that longing? Do you show that longing? Paul continues... You think he'd be done, but he's not done. His heart is so enlarged with affections for these people. And now he says, my joy, my crown. That's Paul's estimation of this church. They are his joy and his crown. Joy here is the word that Paul has been using throughout the book of Philippians. And refers to inward delight, inward satisfaction. And Paul is saying, that that church in Philippi is what brings inward delight to his soul. You think about the opposite of joy. Grief, pain, sadness. That's not what Paul has when he thinks about that church. And here's a man in jail, in prison, in a Roman prison. And every time he thinks about that church, he has inward delight. And it's tempting for now, now for someone to question Paul. Paul, you told us that we are supposed to rejoice in the Lord. Why are you now having your joy in the church? Are you contradicting yourself? You told us rejoice in the Lord. And he's going to say again, rejoice in the Lord. But now you're saying that your joy is this church. What's your issue, Paul? Do you remember when Paul was persecuting the church? What did Jesus say? Why do you persecute what? Me. Hate towards the church is hate towards Christ. When you love Christ, you love His people, you love His church. And if you find your joy in Christ, therefore you will have joy where He is dwelling with His people. In the presence of the Lord, in the presence of God, there is fullness of what? Joy. Where is God present? But with His people. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of what? Righteousness, peace, and joy in whom? In the Holy Spirit. Where is the Holy Spirit? With His church. So, you can see Paul's rationale. 
I like what Hawthorne, he writes in his commentary, he says, but what is worth noting here, what is worth noting here is that the Philippians are Paul's joy, which is a striking way of saying that they are his source or cause of joy. People, not things, these friends, his children in the faith, even with all their failings, Paul knows very well their failings. They are what stimulate within him this great gladness. So let me ask you, what brings you joy? If somebody was to ask you, Sam, what brings you joy? Kent, what brings you joy? Sarah, what brings you joy? Would any of us say, being with the people of God? Or would you say, other things that might bring you joy? But would any of us say, being with the people of God, that's the greatest joy that I can have? Not only his joy, his inward delight, but also his crown. Look at that. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my Stephanos, the crown of victory. Not the diadema, or diadema, the diadem, the crown of a king, but the crown of a victor. Either you think about sports or in the military context, the one who was victorious would receive the wreath upon his head. And Paul is saying, you are the wreath upon my head. That symbol of honor. Paul is saying, you are my public display of honor that I have. And as a, you get the military background that Paul is expanding, and what Paul is saying is that he sees the church in Philippi as a living manifestation of his victory in Christ. Right now, I'm triumphing through the power of Christ, and you are the evidence of that. You are my crown. Paul sees that small, poor, and suffering church as a great symbol of honor and victory that Jesus bestowed upon his head. And if you remember when Paul planted that church, the church was planted with much suffering. Luke tells us that Paul was severely beaten, flogged. So all those scars that Paul had in his back, in his body, they're not a reason for shame. Can you imagine him with others? And people ask, what are all those scars? It must be a really cruel man. Oh, actually, it's from planting churches. <laughs> That's laughable. Planting churches. And for Paul, that was the greatest demonstration of honor of these scars of planting a church like Philippi. And let me remind you that God has not given us this account here just to say, oh, that's Paul. Oh, that's Paul. Good for him. No, 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 no. Shame on us if you think like that. The Lord has given us this because Paul is a pattern. Paul is an example to all Christians of the type of affections and love we must have for the people of God. The love of Christ must constrain us just like constrain Paul. To love his people. So Paul continues. And he says, let me move here. Now comes the exhortation. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. Now comes the verb. Stand firm. Stand firm thus in the Lord. And remember what I told you. The therefore here is very important. The therefore... It's just like 
a bridge that puts together two massive bodies of thought together, two continents of thought. So the therefore is connecting what Paul spoke earlier to what he's speaking now and he's about to speak. Therefore. And we know that the therefores in Paul are always leading us to action. Therefore. And then he goes on and he gives a command. Action. And that reminds us that truth and doctrine is never just to settle in our brains. So many people love deep theological teachings. And then you ask, where is that teaching? It's all stagnated inside their brains. No, truth, theological truth, is always with the telos, with the goal of action. Action. Show me your theology, not by your knowledge of Hebrew and Greek and Latin and systematic theology, but through a life that resembles Christ. Therefore, therefore, all the truth that you heard, now you apply into your life. And that's what we see Paul doing here. All the glorious doctrines of the incarnation. Think about what Paul was teaching earlier. Humiliation. The exaltation of Christ. The marvelous teaching about election. He was seized by Christ. Regeneration. Justification. Sanctification. Glorification. It's all working as an engine to propel the Christians into action. Sometimes I hear people, oh, he knows so much about theology. Show me through your life how much you know. Show me through your life how much you know. Because doctrine is to be the cause of holy living. And if it's not propelling you to a holy life, you don't know the truth. Or there is a disconnection. And I need to pray that in God's mercy He would Readjust that. So all your knowledge, all your study would be leading you to a life of action. Pursuing Christ. So he says, therefore, you stand firm in the Lord. The word stand firm, Paul used this word earlier. Steco. Conveys the idea of firmness. Steadfastness. Unflinching courage like that possessed by soldiers who determinedly refuse to leave their posts. It doesn't matter how violent, how horrible the battle is raging, they will not leave their posts. That's what the word implies here. It's a military word. Over my dead body, but I'm not moving out of here. That's exactly what Paul is telling us. Therefore, in light of all these glorious doctrines, and he just finished with glorification, Paul comes from heaven and says, Therefore, stand firm. We have battles here to fight. So many Christians are running away, backing down, backing up. Jesus Christ, the commander, is telling, No, 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 no. You stand firm. You stand firm. No matter how strong the attack is, no matter how violent the blows are, we must not, we will not, and we cannot retreat. Amen? The Lord has placed us together. In His sovereign grace, He has placed us together as a battalion, as a unit to fight together. Get each other's back. Pray for one another. Bear each other's burden. And when the Lord in His grace takes you out of this battalion, out of this unit, to a different unit, to a different battalion, you also will serve there in the same way, standing firm. And Paul tells us how to stand firm. Look at that. Thus. Stand firm thus in the Lord. The thus connects all that he was teaching earlier to what he's about to teach in the next verses. And he tells us that we are to stand firm in the Lord. That's the orbit. That's the sphere where Christians must be standing firm upon. In the Lord. The reason why so many are weak, so many are prone to wonder, so many are prone to back up, so, so prone to leave their posts, is because they are not standing firm in the Lord. 
They're standing firm on their own. And the Lord tells us it's in Him. And let me tell you that if you're not in the Lord this morning, if you're not in the Lord, you cannot stand firm. The only way that we can stand firm is by being in union with Christ. That's why we must embrace Christ, dwell in Christ, drink of Christ, breathe of Christ, eat of Christ, so we can stand firm in the Lord. And when you think Paul is done, he adds one more. His heart is so full of affection, it's, he can't stop. He can't stop. He loves them so much. And he births another beloved. My beloved. So now you, you understand why he had tears in his eyes as he was thinking about the enemies of the cross. Even entertaining the idea of these enemies coming and bringing harm to that church. How much he loves them. So of course, when he thinks, just to entertain the thought that some enemies might come and destroy the family, he has tears in his eyes, as he said earlier in verse 18. So, Paul sees them as their beloved. Once again, the object of his love. And it's sad how many people come to church, and they are not coming to church in order to love, but in order to use people. How can I use these people for my own agenda? No, no, no. When you're a beloved, it's sacrifice. How can I serve these people? How can I serve them? That's what Paul is saying here. And that's another word that we might read and not be in awe because we are so full ourselves we think are so cool and so lovable and so wonderful that we might read that and think, oh, of course the Lord must love us, must love me, and of course you must love me too. But when we understand that by nature we were children of wrath, objects of God's righteous and holy anger, that should put us in our knees and say, thank you for loving me, the most unlovable man of all. And when you understand the massive theology behind this word, and how God has placed you into the drum of scriptures, it becomes even more beautiful. So, for example, the first time we hear about the word beloved is in Genesis 22, verse 22. The Greek translation of that verse says, Take your beloved son, whom you love. Do you remember what's happening? That's the seed. That's the seed. That Abraham so longed for Isaac. The beloved son. And the Lord says, sacrificing. The beloved one. And then this title, we think about the seed Isaac is the beloved. And now this title is passed to the nation of Israel. So God refers to the nation of Israel as His beloved. His beloved. And then you come to David, the one who represents the whole nation, the greatest king, and his name means what? What does David mean? Beloved. And then you come to Jesus, who is the son of David, the greater Israel, the true seed of Abraham, and he is, listen to him, he is my beloved son. In the baptism, this is my son whom I love, my beloved son. And then in the transfiguration. And then we see that we who are in Jesus, because of our union with the beloved, we now become beloved of God. And now we are, in, we are loved by God and we are empowered to love God and to love one another. But let me tell you that if you are not in Christ, you are not a beloved. You are not a beloved. You are actually an object of God's wrath and anger. 
And the younger ones here, you have parents who love you. You have parents that love you. But if you're not in Christ, God does not love you. His wrath remains upon you. By nature, we are children of His wrath. So today's the day that the Lord is opening the gates and saying, Run to Christ. Embrace the Beloved. And then you become the Beloved of the Father. And His wrath is no longer upon you. It doesn't matter how much your parents love you. What matters is, is the love of the God who reigns the universe upon my life. So to bring to a conclusion, let me finish here. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And I have two lessons for all of us. All of us, we have two lessons to learn from Paul. One is the art of experiencing deep, profound affections for the church. We need to learn to cultivate deep affections for the church. And then we need to learn not only to experience, but to express those affections. Display the affection. Express verbally actions. So the first one, we must learn to experience deep affections for the church. Would anybody disagree that we all must learn the art of growing and to have deeper affections for the people of God? To love these people here like Christ loves. Deep affections for the church is not a unique gift given just to a few selected people. No, 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 no. This is not something that just, oh, that's just for Paul or just, just for leaders. No, deep affections for the church is actually given to every single believer. If you are in Christ, are you in Christ? Then you must have the seed of these affections within you. Amen? And you have the seed within you. Because you're in Christ. Remember, just like any other godly discipline, we need to uh, cultivate. We need to practice. We need to develop. Nobody's born with self-discipline. We all grow into the art of holiness. We grow in putting to death sins. In loving, in giving, in singing. Amen? And the same with affections. Like all godly traits, we must cultivate. And I think about, even in the natural family, think about Rachel and the kids. If I don't cultivate affection towards them, that's not going to grow. That's actually going to die. Think about a garden, and if you don't, Weed, if you don't water, if you don't spend time, what happens? That becomes a jungle of weeds. There is no beauty. The same with our relationships. You think about the family and how I need to be cultivating affections towards Rachel and the kids. And the same with the church. I also must discipline my affections and feelings to enlarge and grow to capture all the members of my church with the affections of Jesus Christ. So growth in affection and tender care towards our brothers and sisters does not take place by osmosis. No. It doesn't take place just by watching people. Wow. I see Rick and Sarah's affection for the church. That's beautiful. Wonderful you're watching, but are you imitating? Are you imitating? Are you cultivating that? So how do we do that? Let me tell you, that's not, that does not take place through social media. Okay? That does not take place through social media. It takes place by social interaction of you opening your home and your hearts and inviting people. 
That's how you, you cultivate affections. When you, hold, when you open the most private location of your life, that's your home. Oh, but they will come. They will make a mess. That's glorious. A holy mess. But they will hurt me. Have we not all hurt Christ? The more I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, the more time I spend meditating upon the cross, the more I behold the great object of Christ's love as He was hanging on that cross, I cannot but love what Christ loves. And that's the church. The more my heart is enlarged and expanded with the love of Christ, the deeper and broader will be my affections towards the members of my local church. Jesus says that those who are forgiven much do what? They love much. So the more you reflect upon the cross, how much Christ loved you and forgave you, the more you will love Christ and His people. And that's mutual responsibility, brothers and sisters. The whole church must strive to be a church that cannot be beloved and longed for. All the members together, they must be striving together to be a church that is lovable. That is the object of affection. It's interesting that Paul never wrote these words to the churches in Corinth or in Galatia. You don't see Paul writing this to those churches with that affection. He doesn't say, Oh, you are my crown, my joy, I long for. There's this mutual love and self-giving between them. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, teaches us something very important. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watching over your souls. That's a wonderful question for people who do not have a church. They are not members of a church. Who are your leaders? You are supposed to be submitting, obeying your leaders, loving your leaders. Who are your leaders? Oh, you are disobeying the New Testament. That's a wonderful question. Who are your leaders? I have people saying, you are. And I said, no, you're not. I'm not your leader. You're not a member of my church. I will not give an account to the Lord for your life. I will not give an account to people who are not members of this church. It's already a very high responsibility to give an account for the members. Can you imagine a bunch of people showing up and never committing their souls to this place and then I have to give an account for their lives? No. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for they will be of no advantage to you. So we all must learn to develop these deep affections for one another. See each other as a joy, as a crown. And then once we experience that, we must express. We must express. And here we see, we learn from Paul the beauty of expressing, displaying affection. Yes, we must show our love through works, right? We must love with words, not with words only, but with actions. But we must love with words too. We must employ our words. We must speak. We must wrap up our works with words of affection. I don't know if some of you have read. I read a long time ago uh, by Chapman, Five Languages of Love, something like that. It's bad. It's really bad. It's a horrible book. For It's a book that gives solutions without Christ. We just need to meet their needs. And then there are the five needs. Oh, you need to 
quality time, words of affection, gifts. Who doesn't like all these things? I'm multilingual. I speak all those languages. We must learn to love with all the different actions that God has developed and requested from us. So, for example, we see many problems in marriage and you're counseling couples and it is this lack of demonstrating affection. And honestly, we used to think that that was just men. No, no, no. It's men and women. Men and women. They have not been affectionate with their words. You don't see. Uh, there was a time where people said, no, that's a problem with men. men. Women. You don't hear women. Wives. Speaking words of affection. So we must learn that. The women, the meals that you cook, all the time spent raising kids, doing all the work that no man could ever do at home. And you must wrap up those self-sacrificing works with words. You adorn. You must adorn those works with words. It's my joy to serve you. You tell your kids, it's my joy. You are my crown. You have no idea how much I love serving you. Husbands. All the hard work, all day, all day long working hard to provide. And we must speak, we must adorn. But that's enough. I already work hard. Don't ask me to say anything. I already demonstrate through my work. No, we must adorn. We must wrap up those works with words. That's I love you. I can't, I can't wait to be with you. That's why I work so hard, because I long to be with you and provide for you. And children, you must learn to speak words of affection to your parents. How I love you. You are my joy. You tell daddy and mommy. We must learn. To express words of affection to one another. And the church is the household of God. And words of affection must be declared among the members of this family. We must speak to one another how much we love each other. You are my joy. You are my crown. I love spending time with you. We are so different. And yet, in our difference, you bring me closer to Christ. You increase my patience. You increase my compassion. How I need to be with you. If I want to be like Christ, I'm not going to spend time just with people who I like, people who are easy to be around. So we need to adorn our works with words. The children in our home, they know how much I work for this church. They know, they know how much I work for the body of Christ. They know when daddy is leaving, I need to do something for the church, I need to visit someone in the middle of the night. They know. But that's not enough. I need to adorn with words. And they know my love for you because not only of the work of spending hours sitting in a desk, studying, visiting, but because of my words. When I pray with the family, we, we, I express all my words of gratitude, how much I love this body. When we speak about the church, we don't speak anything negative about the church. It's positive. How much we love this body. In our songs we sang earlier today. So they see through works and words. And few things awakens the desire to grow in holiness as these simple but profound words of affection. 
Let me tell you, or let me ask you, when somebody praises you for some service that you, that you promoted, maybe you brought a meal one day to someone, maybe you visit someone and you brought a, a, just a card, and when that person praises you and thanks the Lord for your life, do you feel full of pride in yourself? Do you feel cocky? I hope not. That humbles us. Whoa! If just that little thing I did touched that person's heart so much, there's so much more I can do. When you speak words of affection towards me, the preaching, the pastoral ministry. Uh, by, by my desk, I have a bunch of cards from some of you. I have gifts that you have given me, thinking about me. And I have all there. And those things humble me to the ground. When you come to me and you say, Thank you so much. Oh, how I love to see under your preaching. Brothers and sisters, the last thing is to fill me with pride. I'm humbled. I'm humiliated. I want to go back home and study harder and serve you better. Because I think from where God took me and how He's using me to bless you, that humbles me. And that's what Paul is doing here. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus, in the Lord. And I make Paul's words my own words to this church. You are my joy, my crown, whom I love, whom I long for. I have preached in different places, but there is nothing like preaching to you. I love this church. Some of you know how I use my money, how I use my time. We have people in this church that they know everything. How I spend my money. How we live. And for me that's an honor. It's a joy. To have you in my life like that. I'd rather have nobody else but you involved in my life. I have the great crown of honor of participating in the most delicate, the most private times of your lives to be able to perform a wedding perform a funeral to be right there after the baby is born in the hospital or to be with you while you're having problems in the family there is no greatest honor and joy than to be with the people for whom Christ died and how much he treasures you It's heartbreaking to know that so many people will never experience that because they're unwilling to commit themselves to a local body, to a local church. They will never experience this type of life, this type of affection. People will hurt me. Yes, people will hurt you. And we keep opening our hearts. We keep welcoming them. And Paul is no foolish man. He has no idyllic view of the church. He has no utopian view of the church that is a paradise. Look at the next verse. There are problems in the church that breaks his heart. Nonetheless, it's these problems, it's these afflictions in the church that brings us together. I have hurt some of you. Some of you have hurt me. And in Christ, as we forgive each other, we grow in love for one another. And as we grow in love for one another, it displays to the public the beauty of the cross of Christ. That's the most beautiful display of the gospel. It's a body where you have all these people who are very different, very different, yet who love each other so much that they cannot live without each other. So, you are, you are, my joy, my beloved ones whom I long for, and my crown.
Father, we thank You for Your great love towards us. Thank You for making us object of Your love. We who once were objects of Your righteous wrath. Thank You for saving us in Christ. Thank You for adopting us through Jesus. And we pray that You'd help us to grow into the art of experiencing deep affections for one another. Help us to put to death selfishness. And help us to look at each other as brothers and sisters who are bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. Help us to be forgiving just like You forgave us. I pray that You would preserve us. We need You to stand firm. Help us, Lord, as a church. Thank You for giving us affections that we can display to one another. We who once hated one another and we're hated by each other. Now we love one another. That's the power of the gospel. So be with us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.